You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. Every writer's dream to create a character that stands the test of time. Someone who is remembered long after the passing of the writer. In fact, I believe most writers would agree it's far more appealing that the memory live on of the character than of the writer, for it's the character which the writer sculpts and brings to life. To then have a character become iconic of an archetype, well, that's the dream, isn't it? Our subject tonight has come to represent the highly intelligent, incredibly frightening, clinically insane cannibal, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. In 2003, the American Film Institute chose him as their number one movie villain. Hannibal is a creation of writer Thomas Harris. He first appeared in the novel Red Dragon, which released in 91. Harris kept quiet about the inspiration for Lecter until 2013, when he revealed that the character was based on an actual doctor he met in the 60s when he worked as a crime reporter. This doctor was later identified as Alfredo Bali Trevino, who was found guilty of murdering and mutilating his close friend and lover, as well as a few hitchhikers. He was sentenced to death, however, the sentence was later commuted to 20 years, and he was released in 81, at which time he returned to working as a doctor until he passed away in 2009. That's right, folks. The man Dr. Hannibal Lecter is based upon was a practicing physician until 2009. Let that sink in. Tonight, we're going to discuss the Hannibal movies. Due to odd release dates, the films appeared out of chronological order, some acting as flashbacks. Personally, I feel that if you're watching these, it's best to watch them in chronological, not production order. And that is Hannibal Rising, which came out in 2007, Red Dragon, which came out in 2002, and that was actually done first as Manhunter in 1986. However, we're going to stick with Red Dragon. Then there's Silence Too bad, of... Too because I love Manhunter. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, you know what? I haven't seen that since then, and I scarcely remember it. We'll kind of touch okay. on it a little bit, though. I'll mention it. Well, there's again, there's a few things that, uh, that are interesting, especially the casting. Mm-hmm. And then there's Silence of the Lambs, which came out in, in uh, 1991. And for most people, this was their introduction to Lecter. And then finally, there's Hannibal, which came out in 2001. So we're going to start out with Hannibal Rising, which is fairly... It's agreed upon Fairly that, is an understatement, I think. Yeah, it's agreed upon that this is the worst of them all. It was directed by Peter Weber and stars Gaspard, Gaspard Yuliel as the young Hannibal Lecter. This, yeah, the Rotten Tomatoes score on this one is 15% with an audience score of 56%. The Metacritic is a little better, though still not that good, at 35% with a user score of 4.8 out of 10. 
and I think they're right. In, f- <laughs> in <laughs> fact, I would lean towards that 15% on this. And let me ver- be very clear. I've actually read the novels. I'm a big fan of Harris's writing as well as the characters, although, of course, I much preferred the earlier ones than the later ones. They're quite good, suspenseful, and so I'm, I'm a fan of the character. I want to like the character in any interpretation. And on our next episode, we will be discussing the TV series, and you'll see what I mean. This, however, I found disappointing in so many ways. It shows, it starts with giving us some history of Lecter in Lithuania during World War II, and it shows Lecter's parents being killed and he having to care for his young sister and then the atrocities that happen thereafter. The problem is that the film is full of cliches. It tries to bring a humanity to Hannibal that I don't feel is necessary. We if anything, it's detrimental to the character. Exactly. Yeah. Because w- when you look at Hannibal in, especially Silence of the Lambs, of course, that's the Hannibal movie. When you look at him in there, he doesn't need anybody to feel sorry for him or to understand why he is the way he is. He is quite happy to stand alone and be confident in who he is without needing to label him. In fact, they make a big deal in several of the novels that no one can actually label that which he is. What 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 is the problem with him? And so when you have something like this where they try to give him, you know, a villain's origin story, essentially, it doesn't work. Yeah, and, and like it's funny when I'm watching this movie, I just can't help but compare... Hannibal in this particular film to like Magneto because it's a very similar setup yeah. for those characters but the primary difference is with a character like Magneto giving him that sympathetic backstory doesn't make him less of a villain it just helps to kind of define his psychology and that you know it's his actions not his motivations that are necessarily wrong whereas with Hannibal the motivations are irrelevant because the actions are so like Insane, uh, it's not insane, but like taken to such a oh, degree no, that you, you, you don't, well, yeah, I mean, uh, insane was just a bad pun in that particular, <laughs> but like, it's taken to such an incredible degree, the things he does that you, you don't even want to attempt to justify it. It, to, to do that is kind of insulting to the, the atrocities themselves. Yeah. And again, when you're looking at, I mean, he eats people, okay? You can't you can't forgive that and say, oh well, that's because somebody ate his little sister. No, no. <laughs> that's not how it works. We, we can't feel sorry for him because someone ate his little sister. Somebody and he even, ran over my dog once, so I'm just gonna grand theft auto my way around. Yeah, the really? City be okay. <laughs> and the fact that 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 whole setup of the sister being eaten feels so unbelievably forced. The fact that they can't leave the house to go hunting wildlife because they'll be spotted. It was a freaking cabin house in the middle of the woods. I'm sure somebody could go hunt some freaking something instead of eating a child. I mean, that's you're going to a whole new level of badass, psychotic, when the idea that well, 
you know, yeah, sure, there's deer out there probably, but I don't want to get caught. That little girl looks mighty tasty, though. There's, it doesn't fit, and it feels forced, even from the 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 main character, who is ironically the uh, Sherlock's brother in uh, <laughs> the Americanized <laughs> version, which I thought was funny. Um, but he plays the character well, of course. But yeah, it just it feels forced, and so then that big quote unquote big reveal later that Hannibal himself ate her too. You saw that coming a mile away. Yeah, it was like an hour to get to a to that, and it was like, come on, like yeah, okay. Like, <laughs> did anybody was anybody actually surprised by that revelation? Yeah, and I have to say, I am not a fan of the actor who played. Um, Hannibal, not the kid actor, but the teenage angsty, weird, creepy looking guy. Yeah, it just didn't work on so many levels for me. His his facial expressions were so exaggerated; it became cartoonish. Yeah, like when you look at Hopkins, he's got a little bit of that, but it's reined in, and it's. I don't know. It's, For the it's, most part. It's, well, it's still to a certain degree. kind of is. I, I, we'll, we'll get to it, but I feel he went a little overboard with uh, his appearances in Red Dragon. Yeah, while Red Dragon and Hannibal notwithstanding, yeah. But, uh, but this kid here is just, it's like he's trying too hard to be creepy and not scary. And, you know, because of who he is, what makes Hannibal frightening is in the occasional weird look or whatever – it's what he does and who he is. And I don't know. It just, again, it felt too much like they were trying to make a creepy horror movie and not a very intense psychological thriller. Yeah, exactly. What makes Hannibal the character so terrifying isn't him eating people and, you know, threatening people. It's how utterly normal he is 90% of the time. That's what makes Hannibal a terrifying character. So, so we can agree that again, there's, there's not much here to like the whole thing with the ant through marriage that he bangs and is involved with this. That was weird on so many different degrees and it just didn't fit again. I mean, how she was like disgusted with him, but then helping him out until he went too far. It, I don't know. How is the head in her secret lair not far, too far? (laughs) Like, that's got to be the point where you go, okay, you crossed the line there, Hannibal. (laughs) Take that back. Go put it back where it belongs. (laughs) But yeah, so this aunt, quote unquote, well, no, it's not quote unquote. It is his aunt, is the one who introduces him to the finer things in life, essentially, and teaches him some form of refinement and also to, they, they, Insert in, of course, because it's it's hip to do this, the samurai fighting stuff and whatnot, which that too had no place in this whatsoever. He is the fastest person who has ever learned how to use a samurai blade. Yeah. Dude's it was like good. a long weekend and he was a master. Yeah. Slice a head off like nobody's business. So, yeah, we can agree this one here was beginning to end fail. Yeah. Uh, moving on to Red Dragon. Again, Red Dragon is the refa- remake of Manhunter, which appeared in 86. Um, 
the 86 version starred uh, William Peterson of CSI fame as uh, Will Graham and Brian Cox as Lecter, mm-hmm. which is that, that man can play creepy like nobody's business. So like I said, I actually did not rewatch that, but um, it actually didn't do that well at the box office, which is why the director for it actually decided not to work on Silence of the Lambs when that was that was passed on. I actually did rewatch it because I happened to own the DVD. Oh yeah, it, it it's not very easy to find. I bought it years and years ago, and, and I, I I think the reason it didn't do so well is that it was a very eighties movie. Like it kind of got lost in the noise of like a lot of the similar styles of the time. But years later, we can look back at it and see like cinematography and a lot of the thematic stuff it was doing was definitely deeper than a lot of its contemporaries at the time. Like, I mean, William Peterson, his Will Graham was very, very well played. I mean, much more subtle than Edward Norton's. You really see like, you know, the psychological torture more like the Will Graham we're seeing from the TV series. And like the with the music, how, yeah, okay, it's all, it's a lot of poppy, like, 80s style music but looking at it years later it's not just oh inserting what's popular at the time it's how out of sync the music is with what's going on in the movie it just gives you a really weird vibe and I, I think that's why it's more respected now than it was then I'm going to have to rewatch it again because uh, yeah I'd, li- I'd like to again it, I saw it when it came out so we're talking many years ago now yeah, and I, I scarcely didn't. remember yeah well <laughs> I can't can understand why. Red Dragon came out in 2002. Now, by this point, this was the the third. It, it wasn't. It was the fourth, but you know what I mean. It was the third, the second after the Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs broke that ground and made it so that basically everybody wanted to be in a Hannibal movie after this, pretty much. And so you had after that Hannibal, and then after that they filmed Red Dragon. Although, again, the events of her dragon take place before the Silence of the Lambs. I, I warned you, it'd get confusing. <laughs> now, Red Dragon is directed by Brett Ratner. And, of course, we have Anthony Hopkins again as Lecter. Edward Norton is playing Will Graham. And Will Graham's an important character. And you know this, of course, if you've been watching the Hannibal TV series. We've got Ralph Fiennes as the uber-villain serial killer, Dollar Hyde in there, Francis. And we've got Harvey Keitel as Jack Crawford. Now, there's a character, too, that has changed with each incarnation of either movie, TV. We've got a new Jack Crawford, in my opinion, actually. The best one so far is the one from TV. Again, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. We've got a lot of big names in Red Dragon as well, too. We've got Emily Watts, and we've got Mary Louise Parker. We've got Philip Seymour Hoffman who is amazing as Freddie Lowndes. So a lot of big names in this show, people who wanted to be in, again, another Hannibal movie. This one here, what we have is, again, before the events of The South of the Lambs, we have Jack Crawford working with Will Graham, sending Graham out to work with Lecter in order to catch another serial killer, the Tooth Fairy. Now, Will Graham had, at the beginning of the movie, caught Dr. Lecter, but been almost fatally wounded by Lecter. It was him surviving that got Lecter um, essentially caught and convicted, and that's why he is in prison throughout that movie as well as The Silence of the Lambs. 
Jack Crawford, however, is a an agent who will use other mm-hmm. agents regardless of the consequences. Again, if you're watching the TV series, you really see that, but it's more subtle in the movies. But knowing that and then watching the movies again, you really pick up on that. Yeah. And, and I love that. So what this is, is again, Crawford is sending Graham to work with Lecter in order to get information about the Tooth Fairy. Meanwhile, without them knowing, Lecter is working with the Tooth Fairy, sending him after um, Graham to kill Graham, uh, his family as well as him. One of the things I love here is how they set up bringing Lecter into the movie where, you know, Crawford knew the whole time that the only reason he got Graham was because of his connection with Lecter. But it wasn't until, you know, Graham himself realized like, oh, no, you solved this other case. Oh, I only did that because Lecter helped. And then you can see like the he knew the only reason he was here was so that Graham could or so that uh, Crawford could use Lecter. It was very well done. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The Red Dragon scored uh, 69 percent. On Rotten Tomatoes, an audience score is 74, Metacritic of 60 with a user score of 6.8 out of 10. So it scored a little bit higher than the last one, though still not nearly as high as, as Silence of the Lambs, which is the, the big daddy of them all. It's still a very good movie. It's much more, um, much more subtle in a lot of different ways. Finds his performance as the Tooth Fairy is fantastic. It's it's not nearly as charismatic as Lecter, but in mm-hmm. terms of the deranged killer who has so many so many problems in how he deals with society, it's absolutely phenomenal. And I- He's without a doubt one of the best villainous actors of all time. Like he's played every major bad guy you can think of. Yeah, the, um, the him eating William Blake's the Red Dragon, like <laughs> that was fantastic. I love that. So again, it's a it's a good show, though not nearly as good, of course, as the Silence of the Lambs. And part of that is because of the relationship between the characters. That's a big thing with the Silence of the Lambs. What a lot of what made that show was a relationship between the lead character, Clary Starling played by Jodie Foster and Lecter played of course by Anthony Hopkins that played a huge part. And that's what was missing in the, the last of the films we'll discuss as well. Hannibal, when they changed the character of Clarice over to someone else. So with red dragon, the relationship between Lecter and Graham should have been more than what we saw on screen. At the very beginning, you see that they've been working together a lot, but that's all just implied. You never see any of that. And then the relationship from that point on doesn't reflect the level of closeness that we need for this type of suspense story for it to stick. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's something again, that we're seeing in the TV series that they do exceptionally well that was lacking this. And I think that's, that's the main thing missing that would have made this film a lot better than what it was. Yeah. Just because of the audience's expectations. Like if this film had come out on its own, like without silence or, or Hannibal coming before it, it probably could have gotten away with a little more. Like again, not to keep comparing it to Manhunter, but 
one of uh, Mann's big decisions was he actually reduced Lecter's role in the film and let a lot of that unspoken relationship between him and Graham kind of do the work for it, which, you know, I don't know if that would have worked better here because, I mean, this basically wasn't, this movie wasn't about Graham and the Tooth Fairy and all that. It was basically used as another showcase for Hopkins as Lecter. So they had to make that like as big and bombastic as they could. And so the relationship, like you said, just, just wasn't there. Yeah. Interestingly about this, Philip Seymour Hoffman actually insisted on being glued to the chair for that scene with dollar. Of course he did. Wow. That was crazy. (laughs) That entire scene was creepy as hell. And then finding out after that he actually insisted on being glued, I was like, oh, there's character actors and then there's psychotic actors. <laughs> you know who you are, Phil. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Sounds of the Lambs, released in 91. This one has a Rotten Tomato score of 94%, an audience score of 95 Who's the 6%? Yeah, they're idiots. Metacritic, we're looking at 84% with user score of 8.9 out of 10. This one was directed by Jonathan Dem. It stars, like I said, Jodie Foster. It's got um, Anthony Hopkins, of course. Jack Crawford role is played by Scott Glenn. Beginning to end. Oh, and Ted Levine as the villain, mm-hmm. the, the, the Buffalo Bill. The we- weirdest day of my life was the day I realized that Buffalo Bill and Captain Stottlemyre from Monk were the same I person. know. <laughs> I could never look at him the same way again. What's funny is that, again, I saw this when it first came out. And I had seen it a couple of times, but I hadn't seen it since watching Monk. And we were huge Monk fans. Got all of them on DVD every season, watched them all. And then, you know when you're watching a movie later on and you're going, where do I know that actor from? What the hell? And we were sitting down watching Sons of the Lambs again several weeks ago. And I'm going, who the hell? And I was like, oh, my God, it's Stottlemyre. <laughs> Can never, from now on, if I ever rewatch Monk, I'm going to be seeing that dance scene where he tucks his junk yes. in. <laughs> yeah. The, see, I, I had figured it out, you know, a, a little into the Monk. So, yeah, the last few seasons of Monk were really weird for me. I was just waiting for the point where Monk picked out Stottlemyre was the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, talk about... An amazing performance that I will go so far as to say equals Hopkins' performance as Lecter in terms of screen presence. He was so amazing in that movie. I don't know if I'd go that far. Oh, I would. He he was very good. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, here we have, once again, Jack Crawford, who uses his FBI agents regardless of what it'll do to them, sends an FBI cadet over to speak to Lecter and under the premise of working on profiles, serial killer profiles, knowing full well that the conversation would change to Buffalo Bill and that her enthusiasm for for her job, her career would force her to want to work with Lecter in order to catch Buffalo Bill. This was very much a movie about relationships between characters. Not just Clary Starling and Dr. Lecter, but also Starling and Crawford. I mean, when you see the scenes where they're together earlier on and 
like Crawford makes a point of talking to the cops away from her because she's a woman and might offend her. And you get all those little moments here and there that speaks to that relationship and how it shapes her view of the FBI, of what they do and things like that. And then you have the relationships between both Starling and Hopkins and Dr. Chilton, who is the one in charge of Hannibal. There's a lot of little things here and there that make this a phenomenally phenomenally well-made movie. And it's because you care about the characters so much, too, that when events happen, there's a weight to it. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Shelton because here, and as, as well as we saw him in Red Dragon, one of the few actors that actually got to have a role yeah. in multiple movies. Yeah, he's he's such a slime ball. <laughs> like, his relationship with Lecter is is one of the more fascinating parts of the movie for me. Yeah, they do that as well. Even the though they, they hardly ever share screen time, they have such a, an intimate relationship just from the way they talk about each yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah, the um, the Silence of the Lambs was inspired by the real life relationship between a University of Washington criminology professor uh, and, and a profiler and Ted Bundy. And Bundy actually helped investigate the Green River serial killer in Washington. So this kind of thing has occurred. So when you realize that and you watch it, it's frightening to think that... In reality, we're using serial killers to catch serial killers. Yeah. (laughs) To defeat monsters, we created monsters, you know, something along that line. Yeah. And then the Buffalo Bill character is a combination of three real-life serial killers, some who skinned their victims and others who captured, like Ted Budney with the cast on his arm to convince women to get in the, the van and whatnot. There's... There's a lot of truth in the movie as well, which is, again, what gives it weight when you're watching it. And the whole, the whole bit about the creating the suit of skin, even though you see it coming early on, doesn't take away from how impactful it is when it happens. And that's something that like in a lot of movies, case in point, some that we've just discussed here, you see something coming a mile away and you know it is, but, and then when it happens, there's no impact. You really don't care. Whereas with this, even though you saw it coming, it still is so well acted and filmed that it, it still hits you like a ton of bricks. Mm-hmm. So see, it, it definitely shows you that if Thomas Harris is one thing, it's he's very knowledgeable about the things he's writing about. Yeah, there's the the books especially are absolutely fantastic. I do I always tell people to read them. We have them all in the library. My wife actually recently read them all as well. So that's why she was excited when we were watching all the movies again so that she could see what they'd done differently in in the movies and she wasn't always impressed, but that being said, <laughs> there's a lot with this movie that's interesting when you know about some of the behind the scenes as well and things like that. The um, A lot of the things with with Jodie Foster in the role and whatnot, she'd actually tried to buy the rights to the novel herself, but Gene Hackman beat her to it. Did you know this? Yeah, Lex Luthor, he gets up to things, right? <laughs> he actually 
dropped it though. He was going to act in it, but he dropped in it after seeing a, a clip of himself in Mississippi Burning, and he didn't want to do any of those kind of violent roles. I think he missed out on a hell of an opportunity there, but who's to say? And um, and then there's some some different things about uh, Hopkins too, and what he thought about the role and how he based it on different people that he saw and, and whatnot. And, and, and I love that his voice he uses, he says is a combination of Truman Capote and Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> so again, there's a lot with this film to like a lot that is very authentic as well to the point where they actually use um, the, the FBI training headquarters at the beginning, which they were, they were, that had never been done before and they actually got to use it. And, um, the director wanted it to be essentially very boring, very normal, kind of not anything spectacular looking so that later on when you're getting the insanity of everything with Lecter, that it ramps up nicely kind of thing. You, you know, you have a great movie when the worst thing I, the absolute worst thing I can say about the movie is that the opening credits were pretty bad. Oh, God, yeah, weren't they ever? I actually turned to <laughs> that, the... That is the worst thing I can say about this movie. <laughs> when we were watching it, I turned to the wife and I said, oh, my God, somebody needed to invest in more fonts. <laughs> wow, that's terrible. <laughs> Do you know who was going to be... Um, who was the first choice to play Lecter? Not off the top of my head. Sean no. Connery. <laughs> the director wanted Sean Connery to do it, but he turned the part down and I'm thinking, oh my God, how terrible would that have been? <laughs> Jesus, that's horrible. And they also got an actual um, FBI behavioral science. The, the the unit helped with a lot of the making of the film too. Again, I, I can't stress this enough. The film works on so many layers, levels, but a lot of it has to do with how authentic it feels when you're watching it. And that's mm. kudos to the director for that. Yep. And then we move on to Hannibal. Hannibal was filmed in 2001. Now, its Rotten Tomato score is 39% with an audience score of 63, Metacritic 57% with a user score of 6.5 out of 10. Now, this one, again, has Hannibal in it. And this one was filmed immediately after Sons of the Lambs, hoping to cash in on its success. However, Jodie Foster had passed on it, as did director Jonathan Demme. So it went to Ridley Scott, and Julianne Moore was brought in for the role of Clary Starling. One of the front runners was actually Gillian Anderson, but she actually couldn't get cast because it was part of her contract for The X-Files, that prohibited her from playing another FBI agent in another movie or TV show, which is too bad because she would have been a lot better <laughs> than Julianne Moore, which just did not fit in this. And we also had Gary Oldman in this as well as Ray Liotta. This one, again, this one failed in a lot of ways, not the least of which being the chemistry between Starling in this movie and Lecter was it just was not even comparable to what we'd had in the Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. Apparently Hopkins had actually given the nod to more his recommendation to Ridley Scott that that they get Julianne Moore because there was a lot of people up for the role um, because he'd actually worked with her before, but it just doesn't work. The two don't have the same kind of relationship 
that we saw in the Sons of the Lambs and that hindered the film so much. Like the best parts of the film for me were the scenes in Italy. Cause I thought like the, the Lecter and Potsy storyline, like that was a lot better to me than anything to do with Starling. Well, the whole thing with Starling too, and the upper ups in the agency wanting to bring her down and destroy her career, which Ray Liotta, who just, plays a perfect scumbag. Let's, yeah, oh yeah. Let's well, give he him always credit. does. It it just was such a corny kind of situation that we've seen in so many shows. And the reality would be that she wouldn't be in trouble for what happened. She told them to mm-hmm. abort the mission and all these other things. So everything that was happening, she you keep thinking, well, that wouldn't happen like that. Give me a break. Like the the look at everything that this agent in terms of the story has accomplished here. No, she wouldn't be getting in trouble. And so this corrupt higher up getting her in trouble just really felt incredibly corny. And I I absolutely detested it. And then, of course, seeing Lecter coming to her rescue and taking care of him, another thing where you're like oh god i saw this coming a mile away okay maybe i didn't see him cracking his head open and eating his brain while he's still alive (laughs) that part i didn't see coming but it's like uh you're just trying so hard at this point yeah this goes even one step farther than hannibal rising even though it's before hannibal rising hannibal rising just tried to make hannibal a sympathetic character whereas hannibal just straight up tried to make him into a heroic figure and that's even worse yeah, it it didn't work. It's on on a whole mess of levels. We've got Sterling trying to catch him from the states, and then and working with the the cops in Italy. One of who is whom has found him and is trying to cash in on a reward. Which that too, I, yeah, I I didn't mind it as much, but I don't know. It came off as I don't want to say lazy writing, but you know what I mean. It just it's not if, the premise look- of a story. Yeah, if we're looking for positives, like that, that's the best I can do. And yeah, the storyline itself uh, is a bit iffy, but I'm more looking at like the actual. It's the only time in the movie that Lecter seemed actually menacing. Yeah, with his, with the, like the game of cat and mouse. I say so even the, overall, it's very weak. But that's the the highest point I can find for me, at least. Yeah, I really could not find anything good with this movie, like at all. I it was just one of those that beginning to end felt forced did not always make sense and was lacked those all important character ties that are what made Sansa the Lamb so unbelievable. So looking at the story and and the you know what might have been the script that Harris sent off to uh, Jonathan and and uh, and uh, and what's her face from the uh, the first one, uh, Jodie Foster. I can see why they would have turned it down. I mean, apparently it was sent back and forth for rewrites over and over and over again until they finally said no. And I can understand why because even if Foster had been in there, if she'd had to follow that script, I think it still would have would have failed. It. I I I don't have much else to say. I don't know about you, just because. I simply did not enjoy it at all. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with the movie, but just out of curiosity, how did you feel about the actual Hannibal novel? Oh, you know what? I read that. It was I read it when it came out, 
and I didn't mind it. I'm trying to remember it all now. Because, you know, I was it's too way young different to have read uh, Red Dragon or Silence of the Lambs. Like, I saw Silence of the Lambs, you know, probably five or six years after it came out when I was a teenager. So, in 99, like, I was just out of high school when Hannibal came out. So, I read the novel, and I, it was just very off-putting. And not, like, in that creepy way, just a lot of the, like, the the incest stuff with Verger and his sister and then the, the ending with Lecter and Starling, like just from the beginning, I was completely put off with like, I didn't enjoy the novel at all. So I wasn't expecting much. Out oh, of the really? Film. Yeah. And see, having read the other ones too, it was, see, that's the thing. It was, it was I, more I, expected. I still haven't read Red Dragon or Silence of the Lambs just because of how much I hated Hannibal. Hannibal but, was the first of the novels I had read. Red Dragon was quite good. Red Dragon. I'm, I'm sure it was. Is, it's just uh, you know, quite good novel. Yeah, it's just it, it kind of turned me off from the entire franchise as a whole. Yeah, it. What started happening, and it, again, it's apparent in the movies too, is that a really good concept turned into okay, how much can I milk this now for all it's worth? And whenever that happens, you lose the integrity of the characters, and it just often will turn to crap and unfortunately that's what i feel has happened with with lecter with the exception of now the almost reinvention kind of with the tv series which is a perfect segue because we're going to be talking about that on the next episode the second season wrapped up not that long ago they are set to record a th- or to produce a third season and i will just say that I absolutely love these. So it should be a very interesting discussion in a couple of weeks. Yeah, because I had not watched them previously, and I'm halfway through at this point, so I'm actually really looking forward to that. Well, we were at a point where we were watching like two or three a night to get caught up for a while because we were enjoying them that much. I so, watched five yesterday. Yeah. So, my point yeah. exactly is like, oh my God, and you just get hooked. So anyways, like I said, that's going to be on the next episode. You're definitely going to want to check it out. Go to popcornronin.com. Leave us your thoughts on these movies and what you thought of them. And with that, we'll talk to you next time. TV and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their comic book informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.